The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. I thought what I would do is to give you um, an overview from the experiences that I've had and sort of looking uh, at the future from the job I currently have where um, half of my time uh, is at uh, Duke University where we started a university-wide center uh, for big data. And you'll notice this term forge. Just uh, briefly, people always ask, what the heck does that mean? And what happened was when I, left, when I finished at the FDA, literally uh, driving out of town on January 20th a year ago, looking backwards out of my rearview mirror as the barbarians were coming through the gates of Washington, um, I didn't have a job because when you're a political appointee, um, at least in the old U.S. government, you couldn't look for a job while you were employed by the government. That was a conflict of interest. And so uh, d- uh, my old homestead of Duke was nice to me, and uh, I actually had only a weekend where I was unemployed. And uh, we decided to start the center, and we did a sort of survey of people who knew about data on campus. And there are a lot of people, just like here, who are very interested in it. And what came across in the survey is people said, we have a lot of talent, we have a lot of interest, but we all feel encased by the structures that we work in. And we don't need another center that's going to create um, competition for faculty and indirect costs and all those kinds of things. We need, we need help uh, sort of melting down all these structures into coherent aggregations of information that can be analyzed. And so um, we sort of noodled on what all that meant. And the forge came out of that, which is a melting pot of uh, steel uh, all coming together in a sweaty, grimy place where people are working with data. So that's, that's the concept of the forge. And then the other half of my life, uh, I get on a plane literally every two weeks. Uh, we're 66 years old. My wife and I, we get on, so we don't have any ties to kids at home and all that stuff. So we just get on the plane and land in San Francisco, where I go from this academic structure to Verily Life Sciences, which is one of the alphabet companies very ingrained in the Google uh, mentality, which is, couldn't be more different than uh, the university uh, structure. And fortunately, one of my protégés is chair of medicine at Stanford, so I got a Stanford uh, faculty adjunct position, too. So I get to play golf on the Stanford golf course, which is a nice uh, benefit. So uh, this is just a sort of a rendition of... Um, that part of it. So what I'm going to do is and uh, give you a brief uh, primer on how to look at the FDA, paint a bit of a big picture, then raise some policy issues that you ought to be thinking about and make a plea that uh, I think it's really critical to the health of the country that you get personally involved in uh, what's going on with policies related to big uh, data, because I think there's a lot at stake right now. Um, and, you, you know, it, it couldn't have been better, the four presentations that you had, because it's almost like reliving my time as commissioner of the FDA. Um, I was there um, when Zika uh, hit the streets. Um, and if you can imagine being in charge of the FDA where you have no way to screen the blood supply, which is an FDA responsibility, you have no diagnostic test, you have no vaccine, you have no therapy, and you know that uh, children that are being conceived in real time are going to have a certain 
undefined yet rate of uh, neurological uh, disorders. It was quite an amazing experience. And fortunately, the apparatus of the government had been tuned up by the Ebola crisis, so I didn't get the worst of it, but it was still uh, quite an experience. Another three months of my life was consumed with angry calls from senators about uh, the duodenoscopes, which were killing Americans. Um, and it's pretty easy to blame the FDA for anything because we can't really, when you're at the FDA, you're, you learn how to just soak it up. It's a great New England Journal editorial that's titled uh, Kick the FDA, America's Favorite Pastime. And, um, but really, you know, what uh, an amazing problem because here you have our nation's best academic medical centers causing these infections, not cleaning their instruments appropriately, and not reporting the adverse events that occurred. Even a network of centers that were being paid to do it by the FDA were not reporting these events. So we'll get into a little bit about uh, you know, what you all talked about in your translational stuff was really translational. And I'll say the other two I'll also mention as we go along. It just so happened they come up in the lecture in one way or another. Um, but they're all part of a bigger picture that um, I think it's important that uh, our best thinkers in medicine are aware of and thinking about. So the FDA, in a nutshell, 20, it actually turns out 20% of the economy, about one out of every $5 spent, is regulated by the FDA. It begins with cosmetics and food. Remember, it's the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. It's the way it started. I will readily admit I was not an expert on food, but I was really not an expert on cosmetics. But lest you think that it's trivial, remember that we had 30,000 Americans who lost all their hair during my uh, tenure because of Wynn Hair Care Products. Uh, another episode of a company, because it wasn't required to by law, didn't report the adverse events that it had in hand. And in San Diego, you should be hyper aware of the fact that it's not known when you slather your babies with sunscreen every two hours as directed, if that's what you do. It's not known what the absorption of chemicals is into the systemic circulation and tissues of those children. And those who make sunscreens have on purpose not done the studies to find out because they're not required to by law under the Cosmetics Act. I could go on with stories about cosmetics, but food turns out to be half of what the FDA deals with. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's actually a miracle that you can eat every day and not spend a lot of time worrying about the basic safety of your food. A lot of reason to worry about the nutritional value of your food and what it means, but the fundamental safety of your food is protected by a vast system that depends on uh, collaboration among uh, farmers, uh, county agents, state agents, and the federal government with the FDA regulating about 80% uh, of the food supply. The most underfunded part of the FDA is the veterinary products side. And, um, you know, it's sort of understandable. You don't make a lot of money uh, making drugs for animals. It's not a very profitable thing. So the user fees upon which the FDA is dependent for its funding are not high here. But there's a lot at stake because um, now with metagenomics, we were able to look at the changes uh, in the guts of animals in Southeast Asia and the rate at which plasmas show up in the population in the United States. It's very fast. Uh, 
and a lot at stake uh, in the one uh, health uh, mission that we all should have now. I had to deal with a lot of angry farmers about the fact that we cracked down on antibiotic use on the farm when they said we're giving doctors a pass because they're not doing a good job in the intensive care units and in the pediatric clinics. It was hard to defend. Let me just tell you, when farmers are angry, uh, a lot of them have guns. You don't want to mess with them. So, um, Then you got drugs and devices. Uh, drugs, uh, everybody thinks about with regard to the FDA. I mean, as you know, devices are the area that right now that's exploding in the most uh, amazing fashion. I'm living in the middle of it. You talk about engineers and doctors working together. If you go to Verily, you'll find 400 engineers and about 25 doctors now, and it's an amazing uh, experience to have the interactions uh, that we're having. Biologics, a tremendous amount uh, happening now. One little thing to look for here is the Right to Try Act that Congress just passed that made it law that gives people uh, with critical illness the right to request access to uh, experimental therapies. Um, the thing to watch is it's going to have no impact on uh, traditional drugs and biologics, but it's a free pass for people selling stem cell treatments that probably don't work to people for large amounts of cash, and that's going to be the thing to watch for. And then uh, we tend to th- I, I tended to think that cigarettes were sort of taken care of by David Kessler a couple of decades ago with the FDA. But what happened was uh, he exposed all the information but lost the battle to regulate tobacco. And it was only under uh, President Obama that the Tobacco uh, Family Act was passed in uh, the first year of the administration. So I found myself in charge of a startup that had gone from zero to 800 employees full-time. And my favorite part of the organization were 3,000 teenagers who were buying uh, surreptitiously buying products from 7-Eleven stores all over the country as part of the undercover operation. We had the power to shut down 7-Eleven stores on the second uh, infraction. And remember that uh, this year 450,000 Americans will die from tobacco-related illness, and we still have 32 million uh, tobacco users. And I, I could give a long talk just about that, but I won't bore you with it. just need you to be activated because there is a lot in play right now in the cat and mouse game that goes on between tobacco regulation and tobacco company lawyers who are some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, Let's go back. So the mission of the FDA, uh, so that's what's regulated. And then the mission of the FDA, number one far and away is safety. And it's sort of why I perked up in the discussion about the uh, elevators and the ERCP devices um, you know, if I had a dollar for every engineer had a great idea and didn't think ahead about what was going to happen clinically, who ended up in an uncomfortable situation with patient uh, harms caused by well-intentioned uh, devices, I would be a very wealthy person. And remember that the history of the FDA is really built on a series of national catastrophes that have occurred. It all started with a milk wagon horse in 1906 who was being used to develop antitoxin and got infected and killed children um, as a result, and then went on to penicillamide, sulfonylamide, which was um, an antibiotic that was laced with strychnine and sold in the southeast of the U.S. 
and then uh, um, on to thalidomide, which most people uh, know about. Free samples given to pregnant women to uh, prevent nausea since it wasn't allowed to come on the market in the U.S. And then for devices, it was the Dalcon Shield. Um, pretty good way to prevent pregnancy, but a great way to also cause uh, pelvic infections that took a long time to figure out and unravel. So um, safety is uh, really the key element of the FDA. And it's really fun to watch culturally what happens. When, if we go a few years between a catastrophe, all you hear about is, well, the FDA is blocking this and that, so we need to open up and let more innovation happen. Then a catastrophe happens and everyone overreacts and uh, laws get passed that the FDA doesn't like that uh, reduce innovation. So um, it, it's a, a fascinating thing. Tobacco we talked about. But interestingly, right there in the mission statement is promoting innovation at the same time uh, that uh, the primary mission is safety. And this is uh, quite a challenge, but I think we're learning now over time through trial and error that there are ways to provide safe lanes for innovation through appropriate levels of regulation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through it. Um, and then the next one is uh, we'll talk a lot about helping the public get accurate science-based information. I completely undervalued this until I got in the job. So imagine that you had the job of writing um, something that would go on something about that tall that would go on every food item in the United States for 320 million people to be informed at different levels of knowledge and education and speaking different languages. Um, it's, it's an amazingly difficult job, uh, constrained by a number of laws and uh, rules that deal with interaction with uh, industry. And, you know, the way I like to think about it is it's almost impossible to get doctors to follow instructions, even when it's clearly known what should be done. But the FDA is dealing uh, with a mandate uh, for the entire U.S. population. And then uh, last but not least... Uh, we've got the two big threats to our uh, near-term future, um, infection and uh, nuclear catastrophe. And, you know, not to be uh, melodramatic, but I think you're probably all aware that we're at the highest risk of nuclear attack in the history of the United States by any expert's um, estimation at this point. And the public, by and large, um, is so far removed from the possibility that um, while, yeah, you know, I was following some things in California, I guess there was an earthquake today that wasn't felt here very much, but everybody knows what to do in case of an earthquake, but California is probably the highest risk target right now for a nuclear catastrophe just because of proximity uh, to North Korea. And there's not a lot of talk about what to do in case uh, that happens. But, the, um, you know, what's not appreciated, I think, by a lot of people that I gained a great appreciation for is that there is no, like, uh, standing force in the federal agencies to deal with these problems. Um, there's a little bit of funding. But basically what happens is in the case of a, a, a catastrophe, either infectious or nuclear, uh, the best people get pulled in with special authority to do things. So... As I said, you know, imagine that you had no way to screen the blood supply, no uh, diagnostic technology, no treatment for something that was, could potentially become an enormous epidemic. And within a year, we had a couple of those things completely under control. 
by just uh, really greasing the skids and working with industry and the CDC to develop the technology for Zika um, uh, efforts. So um, the beauty of it, and maybe what's uh, led to the kind of lecture I'm giving, is that um, people tend to think of the FDA as a regulatory agency, but under uh, mandate of law, it's a science agency and a public health agency. The criticality of the term science is, is not to be lost uh, in today's context. As a political appointee, as commissioner, um, it was, uh, I learned that it was absolutely essential that I not delve into individual decisions about individual products, but that my mandate was policy. Because the courts have a history of deferring to the FDA on uh, challenges to the FDA's decision-making because it's a science-based um, agency. If it were seen as a political agency or if a political appointee started making decisions, think about the current president who has the authority to approve any drug or device on the spot if he wanted to do it. Once that happens, then judges could rightfully say, I know as much as any other political yokel who's uh, making these decisions. And so you'd open up the gates for just multiple legal entanglements over almost every decision because almost every decision the FDA makes creates winners and losers uh, in a financial sense. Even things that you say, it's wonderful that we could approve this new great treatment. There are people who have the existing treatments who are going to sell less of what they make and you learn right away, have a, a, a very deep interest in uh, slowing things down. So in the midst of all this complexity, which I think is actually wonderful, I would argue if you look at decision-making at the FDA, which has many problems relative to most things we do in life, it's very structured through a long history of core challenges and laws and interactions among the different sectors of society that need to deal with it. And now, all of a sudden, we are completely overwhelmed by data. Um, and I, I'll try to make the case that if you don't believe that already, as I go through this, um, see what you think. I think a useful context to think about where we are today is to think in terms of industrial revolutions. And these are the, this is the, the lingo used by the World Economic Forum um, to think about it, that we're just starting the fourth industrial revolution. And to refresh your memory, imagine that you were uh, trying to uh, make a product in a factory right before... Um, steam power was uh, invented. You're, you're trying to figure out how people can work harder and harder and hand-driven things. And so the first industrial revolution was water and steam power. The second was uh, electrical power. The third uh, was electronics and information technology. And the older folks in the room have had the privilege of seeing the difference before and after email, for example. In my field of global clinical trials in cardiovascular disease, it was not possible to do them until the amazing uh, technology revolution caused by the fax machine occurred. You know, all of a sudden, instead of having to stick forms in a container and have them flown by airplane somewhere, um, you could almost instantaneously get the ECG or a simple data form uh, brought to a central location. And I think we're just recovering from this revolution now, and the new one now is the digital revolution. And the concept here is that um, 
everything is being reduced to information, whether it's biological uh, or physical. And I can't think of a more graphic example than the, than the uh, 3D, 3D printer. It, it's, still, I don't, it's still hard for me to really grasp that it's possible that you're writing a program which is producing an object which used to be almost impossible to even envision that you could produce because of the multidimensionality and complexity of, of doing it. But I think uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we're just at the front end of this revolution. We have no idea where it's going to go. Um, and it's going to be critical that really smart people get ahead of it and think carefully about um, how we bend this revolution in a direction which is good for people and not uh, bad for people. And uh, there are high expectations. Every uh, popular magazine or article you can find is talking about how we're going to use data now to transform healthcare. And this is really, the fact that I do think this is true is the reason that I've got one foot in a university in North Carolina where a lot of the societal problems are concentrated and another foot uh, in Silicon Valley where the money and a lot of the brain power is concentrated that needs to be melded um, in the right direction. So, so what is going on? And this is just uh, my view of it. It could be wrong, but this is my depiction of all of you up until now. Biomedical research has been fundamentally limited by computational insufficiency. So, um, you know, why is it that 90% of drugs that are put into phase one? So remember the context. So you've got to do um, your drug discovery, your target identification, your preclinical work. You've got to convince a bunch of investors to put enough money into it to do it. You've got to convince an IRB that it's okay to do a human experiment. And yet 90% of the drugs that go into people in phase one don't make it to market because of unexpected toxicity or they just don't work. So, and I think the main reason for that is that we develop drugs today uh, only able to look at a small part of the total elephant. If we could look at the whole elephant, um, we could do a much better job of predicting things like off-target toxicity or desirable biological effects of uh, target engagement. So that gets to my uh, totally conflicted um, project, because I was working on this before I went to the FDA when uh, Alphabet was Google X. And uh, think of it this way. Um, if in 2007 I had told you that you're going to get in your car and you're going to start talking to your car and your car is going to talk back to you and tell you where to turn and uh, where to go and that what your car says to you is going to change autonomously based on everything that's happening in every road in the United States, you'd, simultaneously you'd say, you're out of your mind. It, it couldn't possibly be true. But of course, it is happening. And whether totally autonomous vehicles get going now or in the near future, I don't know. But just the fact that MAPS works um, is a product of the fact that people went out and mapped every road in the United States every house in the United States and had the technology to integrate information simultaneously from every part of the United States. And so the question is, why can't we do that for the human condition? And uh, the conflict here is that I started out as a faculty member at Duke University working with Google to design the study. Now I'm the sponsor of the study, and I'm an institutional official at Duke, and I'm, and I'm a faculty member at Stanford, which is the other 
enrolling institutions. So uh, recognizing the conflict, I hope you get the idea that um, it might be possible now to come much, much closer to looking at the whole elephant. So as I think about the whole elephant, of course, um, if we start with fundamental things, we think about um, biomolecular information. And in the study, starting with the first 10,000 people, um, we're uh, measuring six terabytes of data in the first two days. Um, an example that you know I have a lot of fun not really being able to understand is the immune system in 24 dimensions. I, you know, there are not many people who can even imagine what 24 dimensions really are. And obviously, to store and compute the information is just something that couldn't be done a few years ago. But now it's just a small part of the overall picture uh, of what can be uh, measured in the individual. And then the next part of it is uh, what's happening within healthcare delivery systems. It's not a new concept that every time you touch the system, if it's a digital system, a footprint is left that can be captured and uh, integrated with other people's footprints and your own to produce uh, analyses that can provide good decision support uh, for clinical practice and for your decisions about your health. I call this a Walmart slide because this is how Walmart works today. Um, everything's barcoded. Um, the information is integrated across all the stores. And then the analyses are done uh, taking into account the heterogeneity of the local uh, environment. As, as I'll show you at the end, it's also the way uh, Google works for the most part today. So um, Kaiser really in healthcare started this concept, but I would guess if you looked at UCSD today, it would be the same thing. You have a number of hospitals, facilities, nursing homes, uh, home care. Um, the, the quest of the leadership, for understandable reasons, for, for business purposes, um, is to bring in information that's coded uh, the same way as much as possible into a central repository and then uh, feed it back out uh, in the form of decision support to where it came from. So if you look at the U.S. today, um, there's something like 670 health systems now that account for over between 90 and 95 percent of all the hospital discharges. Outpatient care is more heterogeneous and a little more mixed up, but essentially it's now becoming countable that you have a certain number of systems that have a compelling business interest in collecting data, storing it, and analyzing it in a way that enables them to conduct their business in a better way. And of course, the challenge that many people are suffering from that explains a lot of the burnout rate of physicians is that uh, data is being collected, but there's not a whole lot coming back that's really all that useful in terms of clinical practice. So um, we're part of the way there, but nowhere near all the way. But the hope that we had at FDA, which I think gets back again to the duodenoscope, while the manufacturer certainly was at fault, the manufacturers, who got so enamored with the engineering of the elevator that they didn't think about the fact that you couldn't sterilize uh, the inside of the elevator using the techniques that have been used before. And certainly uh, the FDA could have done a better job, but the other real culprit here, as I say, is the medical centers that didn't have systems of collecting information. And you think at a time when we're saying we're so patient-centered that something like lethal infections from an expensive procedure would be something that the academic medical centers of the country would have picked up, but they really didn't for a long time. 
But what if we had a system that instead of passive and one-off where we say research is something we do off in some other building and it's separate from clinical practice, what if we took advantage of digital information like every other modern industry does and did the research in practice? Then we would have a system with active surveillance where we could calculate numerators and denominators and where uh, clinical trials could be done much more quickly at a much lower cost with a lot more relevance to the people that we're trying to treat uh, in the future. And so a practical example of this is, is sort of the fourth job that I have, which is the chair of the board of the uh, People-Centered Research Foundation, which is a national experiment that was funded by the ACA. Um, and about $300 million has gone into it. And the question is, can we take a bunch of these health systems, which are collecting data and centrally storing the information, and link them together in a way that allows you to translate the information across the systems and uh, make sense of it? And that's the so-called PCORnet, which is becoming uh, now a not-for-profit uh, foundation, the PCRF. And so the idea is, what if you not only did that, but you also got activated patients? And if you think about where real progress is being made today, it's in the rare genetic diseases, cancer, and areas like cystic fibrosis, where you have very active patient groups which have taken matters into their own hands. They're not satisfied waiting on the academics to figure it out. They form networks, and you have patients looking for trials instead of trials looking for patients. That's where progress really gets made. So what if you activated a lot more groups like that, and then you got a coalition of willing health systems that were willing to share their data? I'll come back to that in a minute. And you coordinated the effort, then maybe you could have a network that could really deliver the kind of information that uh, we need instead of what we're getting now. And, you know, at this point, the jury's out on this effort. We're three years in. Uh, we've got... Uh, uh, about uh, 25 patient groups that um, are involved. You see them listed here. It's everything from very rare genetic diseases to common diseases like COPD or atrial fibrillation. And we've got 34 health systems. Uh, the UC system is one of them. Um, and little did you know probably that you're sharing your data nationally um, but we have a lot of work to do to uh, bring this to the level uh, of the practitioner. But the sum of all this now is that we're curating information on 122 million Americans once a quarter, and it does make sense. So it's about a third of America um, is in this network. So now the question as we go forward is, can we now link this data to people in practice uh, to do the thing that's really needed, which is not just passive observation, but active interventional studies to figure out what the best uh, treatments and approaches are uh, to improve our health. So that's the health system. We've got biomolecular data. We've got clinical data. Um, and now we've got this uh, wild frontier, which has led to my question about digital phenotyping. In the baseline study, we're sending everybody home with uh, a study watch that measures 17 parameters, a sleep sensor that measures uh, all the sleep activity at home, an Android phone that measures a very large number of uh, things, and uh, developing a system to integrate all this information um, to try to make sense of it. 
There's a great article about this uh, concept of digital phenotyping by Tom Insel, who was head of the NIMH, uh, went to Verily, where I am now, and got so excited about it, he's now formed his own company called MindStrong, which is totally devoted to digital phenotyping. And there's a word in here called prosody, P-R-O-S-O-D-Y. I had no idea what it meant until I met Tom. But this is uh, understanding things by prose. So you're not thinking about the content of speech. You're talking about the cadence of speech and the tone of speech and the rate of speech. Um, and it's really amazing what you can learn about a person from that. And when we talk about mild cognitive dysfunction, uh, something like the way you type on a keyboard or the way you talk um, or the way you move uh, activity-wise, it uh, looks like there's a tremendous amount you can learn, uh, particularly about issues related to cognition. Um, we already know, uh, and Apple has been public about this, and it, it was an issue that came up again when I was at FDA. What do you do if you can tell that there are like, uh, somewhere around a million Americans who have Parkinsonism and don't know it? Because you can see it by the way they carry themselves when they're carrying a cell phone. It's not hard to tell. And it's, now with the watch, it uh, uh, adds a whole other uh, dimension to that. And even beyond that, uh, the area that I was most interested in about going to Google was search, because I think it's the most important public health tool that's underused uh, in the world. And it turns out that uh, there's something like 3 billion people who do a search every day in the world, and 1 out of 20 are health-related. Um, and so whether you know it or not, when your patients see you in clinic, a very high proportion are going right home and getting on their search engine, or some not even waiting. To, uh, they get in the car, and they're on the uh, cell phone right away trying to figure out what the hell you were talking about because a uh, very high percentage obviously don't understand what you were saying when you saw them uh, in clinic. Now, we'll come back to that. Um, it's not only the search information that um, we, we have, but also the ability to um, integrate that with geospatial uh, methods. And, of course, this uh, is integral to MAPS. There's a meeting coming up in about a month and a half that I'm really excited about, these maps uh, are, are from Chris Murray's group at the Gates Foundation. They do the Global Burden of Disease reports, and they're, they're doing a lot of focused effort in the United States today. But the meeting will uh, be the Gates Foundation plus all the elements that Google can bring to bear, like maps and search um, and Gmail, to see um, how much refined information we can get to understand uh, health parameters uh, in a temporal and geospatial uh, framework. But when I show this slide, most people who are not medical people think it's the election map. And it actually has a very high correlation with the election map. But what it is is life expectancy by county uh, in the United States. And as you can see, it doesn't look so good for um, the states. I'm, I was born in South Carolina lived most of my life in North Carolina, you'll notice this little Raleigh-Durham thing here, this little uh, area of blue. Um, but you see the pattern here um, is, is uh, at least moderately, moderately concerning. But more concerning should be the change in life expectancy. This trajectory uh, is a bit scary to somebody like me because the differences that already exist are becoming more 
exaggerated. And they're very closely correlated with the election map. Uh, and they reflect uh, um, a difference in culture and beliefs that are having a big impact uh, on health. Just to make it more graphic, you know, what is it that's causing this? Um, if we look at men and women between ages and 54 in the U.S. as a whole and say, let's look at drugs, alcohol, and suicide deaths, here's the rest of the economically developed world. Here's the United States. Now, as I've shown this to lay people, they actually have trouble absorbing it. They can't imagine the United States would be in this kind of a condition compared with our pairs. And in the midst of so much brilliance and technology creativity, you might ask, how is this possible? The net result is that uh, we're seeing that our um, life expectancy has gone down now for three years in a row while the rest of the economically developed world is seeing a continued increase in life expectancy. But it's not just the rest of the world, it's California. And I gave this talk at UCSF on Monday. I didn't have time to make up slides to insult you guys, but I insulted them instead. Um, There's an eight-year difference in life expectancy in California, depending on what county you're from. And it's a very distinct pattern. Number one in life expectancy is, of course, Marin County. Um, But it's fascinating that you go just a couple of counties away to Lake County, which you can drive to very easily from San Francisco, and you've got a huge difference and something that looks a lot worse than the average uh, in the United States. And so, um, you know, it's a major question. What is it that's driving this difference in a time when everyone has digital access. That is, uh, there's no longer a digital divide in terms of general access to information because it's all there on a cell phone and everyone has one. There's something different about the way people are understanding and processing information. And there are other parts of California, and you probably recognize uh, this, that where you have large swaths of areas that look terrible in terms of health. And the sum result, uh, you know, this is a sort of an old topic, but if we look at what the U.S. spends compared to everywhere else, it doesn't look so good. But what's even more concerning is while our costs continue to increase compared to other countries, we're seeing this decline in life expectancy, which is making us even more of an outlier. And, you know, I don't know what you think, but... Um, If I wanted to live a long time and have a good uh, functionality, this is probably not the country that I would choose to live in. Now, there may be other uh, factors, and certainly for me, there are, but um, we're in the healthcare profession, so you gotta wonder if we got the right priorities. So, um, you know, how do we approach this? And the easiest thing to say is that this is almost all not due to healthcare per se, it's due to cultural differences. Um, But we've known for over a century that the drivers of health outcomes are not what doctors do. They are are social. And United Healthcare came to see us about three weeks ago. And their message was they had done an analysis of all their big data. And the two most important factors by far in terms of longevity and uh, functionality were zip code and credit score. So um, there's no question that that's the case, but what is our responsibility as the experts to figure out how to intervene, especially now 
Years ago, we could have said, well, I'd have to drive for four hours to get to wherever it is. Now we can reach people digitally uh, in real time. So what's going on? So this is a list of uh, the key issues that I hope people will think about. First, just to make the point that um, in terms of what health systems do, we've now got a framework in the law through the 21st Century Cures Act, which is saying, uh, please share your data. Please work together. Uh, The FDA is required by law to come up with guidance that will drive the industry in this direction, and we've got to figure out how to involve uh, academics and health systems uh, in this effort. And I won't dwell on this here, but I will uh, just show you that there's a lot of work going on on the ethics of this, and uh, the ethical concept of how much longer can we watch data like this and not do something um, about it. And so, um, in, in really excellent work done at uh, Hopkins, um, there's some tremendous articles done as part of um, the Economic Recovery um, Act where there was a windfall of money that led to a lot of good things, I think, in biomedical research, but really good work on the um, ethics underpinnings of what should be done. So, in, in the uh, topic of health systems, um, the purpose of this slide is just to say it's a good time for people to get involved. So if you're working on duodenoscopy and you want to make sure you're, you can do the clinical trials to show that your scope actually works, there's a lot in it for having a place like UCSD participate in a network of centers that can efficiently generate the data that you need instead of paying the enormous amount of money you have to pay right now to get clinical studies done. If you're concerned about Zika virus, I mean, it was amazing at FDA to see how impaired our public health data are, just trying to get an idea of what a normal head circumference is in a population and what happens over time took tremendous amount of work. And in a situation where every hospital has an electronic record and everybody's measuring head circumference, you've got to wonder um, why we don't have a better system uh, for doing this. The benefits this would have for inventors and patients um, is if we had such a system, like I showed for PCRF, and it really worked, uh, there's a lot of belief at the FDA that you could move uh, decision-making on what gets on the market earlier um, and use that data on the back end to sort things out in a much more rational way than we can today. So a lot at stake in getting this right. And I might add, a lot of interest among patient groups, particularly those with serious illnesses, uh, in getting a better response uh, from the academic centers, which they see as largely self-absorbed and not interested in their well-being um, in general. It's been really interesting to hear about that uh, from inside the FDA and hear the conversations from the patient advocacy groups. Well, a huge issue, and I think the issue of our time, to the extent you're part of a larger university system, it's the integrity of information on the Internet. And the problem, I think, is basically this. Um, the technology is advancing so much further than the evolution of the human brain that people just don't know what to do with all this information. And there are major consequences of that. Um, it's playing out uh, this week, and... I think next week will be very interesting to get more of the details, but I don't expect that anything that's going to be said is going to be very uplifting over the next period of time. And this slide actually tells the story of what um, 
happened. I thought this was one of the best graphics I've seen uh, in the press. But now we have empirical evidence uh, that's um, quite disturbing and a call to action. And this just came out in science, I think, last week. And the fact is, if you uh, look at Internet activity, falsehoods travel further. That is, they go to more people. They travel faster. And they last longer than truths. So uh, the way I like to think about this um, is that for every question about health and medicine that someone has, there is an answer on the Internet. You're a part of a research and development education, medical care establishment, and people will have a choice between falsehoods on the Internet, which generally are more satisfying. They don't, it's much more satisfying to people when you totally make it up because you don't have the uncertainty. It sounds real. That compared to a scientific truth, which always has uncertainty and caveats associated with it. So we've got to figure out um, what to do about this because I think this is at the core of a lot of the deterioration of health that we're seeing uh, in parts of our country. But as we think about this, how do we balance people's right to privacy? Um, We don't want to cut people off from information to protect them. We don't want to censor to protect them. And we do have uh, the major opportunity here for public health benefit. What if when someone left your clinic, you could say, just search on X, Y, and Z. There's reliable information there. And you can look at it, you know, anytime you want. You don't have to wait to come back to clinic to find out about it. Um, And so that's really what our mission is at Verily, is to make health information universally accessible. And um, it's been fascinating to work with search. Search is part of the parent Google, not Alphabet. So, you know, I don't have any control of anything at search, but it's been very exciting to work with it. And one thing that has been decided, which I think is really important, is for the major things that people search on, there will increasingly be knowledge panels, which is curated information uh, vetted through medical authorities um, that you can rely on at least to represent um, the consensus of what's known about a topic. But it shouldn't stop there. Um, As you're probably aware, if you're posting things related to terrorist acts or you're uh, threatening to commit suicide, um, there's an intervention that occurs. But what about if you're just depressed? And it's really interesting now. We know that there are about 300 million depressed people on the globe. Um, About half of people in the world, um, uh, I'm sorry, in the U.S., don't get any treatment. And those who do get treated, if you look at their search histories, they're clearly depressed on average about seven years before they get treated. And uh, treatment's not perfect, but it does have an effect. So um, what is the responsibility since uh, in the search universe you can see that this is going on? And this is only one of hundreds of such questions But it's the one that um, was chosen to work on first. So what happens now is if you search and it looks like you're depressed, there's a pop-up that says, would you like to take a survey? Survey is a PHQ-9, which is the medically um, validated uh, questionnaire. And um, I'll just say a lot of people have filled out the questionnaire. 
And it, so we got a lot of depressed people in the U.S. who are very willing to identify themselves. And now we got the question, what do we do about this? And my hope is that we'll develop methods of integrating the information with search with the right consortia of patients and um, providers uh, who can work together to have systems to help people who may be identifying themselves on the Internet but unwilling or unable to do so in practice. But to make all this work, we've got to start sharing data in a different way. And, you know, the most vocal uh, proponent of this is Joe Biden, of course, who had the experience of having a son with glioblastoma, getting a brain biopsy at one famous cancer center and going to another and being told they didn't have access to the genomics from the brain biopsy because that was confidential information. And so he's been on the rampage about data sharing. I think a lot of the rest of us are. And somehow we've got to figure this out. But as we do this, I think we've also got to consider that um, in among medical types, we think about HIPAA. That's about 1% of people's lives. We know that the other 99% of people's lives is much more important for their health, unless they have a rare genetic disease. And yet, by law, that information is for sale. It's totally available. The Russians were able to buy it. Um, the, the Facebook aside, there are whole other sets of data that are totally legal for anyone to buy that have uh, a large amount of information about uh, individuals in the United States. And so I think as we rethink this problem, we've got to come to grips with not just the medical care data, but all of the data um, about us. Because the big advantage that we potentially have to help health is we can make a persona for any individual now that has their biomedical, as I've shown you, their biomedical data, their medical history, their behavior, their social interactions, their geospatial location. And the question is, are we going to use that for good or for bad? It's not a question of whether it's going to happen. It's already uh, happened. So this is just saying what I just said and urging places like UCSD to be active in thinking about this because this is too important to leave to executives in a tech company um, or to politicians. It's something that we all need to be thinking about. And then um, sort of at the end here, I'll just mention advertising, which if you're at the FDA is like the bane of your existence. Uh, The law says if you're selling things across state lines, Um, that you have to be truthful and not misleading. Well, truthful is relatively easy to figure out, although obviously on the Internet it's really hard to figure out. Misleading is a whole different uh, story. And, you know, the the, uh, Sentinel example was the Merck case with Vioxx where they uh, reported the results of their trial up to the primary endpoint, didn't report all the other data they knew about where they had an excess of serious adverse events um, afterwards. So advertising that would be truthful, but it would be misleading. And how many times, I don't know about you, but the advertisements from academic medical centers, they don't fall under the FDA's jurisdiction. It's the Federal Trade Commission, but I don't really know what value there is in an advertisement of a doctor in a white coat uh, showing how trustworthy that doctor is. Um, and what the veracity of these kind of advertisements really are. But we live in a country that has the First Amendment. And so um, 
in this era where everything can be put on the internet, the old mechanisms of control of, for truthful and misleading are no longer really there. And we don't know what to do about it and how to regulate it. There are, there's a whole legal uh, a theory that's really prominent in the uh, right wing today that corporations have equal rights as individuals and that, uh, you know, ultimately it's just a competitive um, issue. But I think if you talk to the tech CEOs now, the belief was that if you made things free, even if you captured advertising on the back end, that the truth would win out. And as I've tried to show you, there's good empirical evidence now that that's not the case. And lest we think this is new, there actually were snake oil salesmen. I wish that I had been able to bring all the slides I had at FDA. There's a beautiful slide collection of all the advertisements that have happened historically of snake oil salesman equivalents. I love the uh, rattlesnake oil king's liniment for rheumatism. So, you know, if these guys were still around, uh, we wouldn't need the head of your CTSI because rheumatology would be not needed at all. You just take the rattlesnake oil and everything will be fine. And I, I won't dwell on this, but um, there's a whole interesting area now evolving about when is an algorithm equal to or better than a doctor and how do uh, people in society and healthcare professionals work with algorithms and technology. Uh, we're doing a lot of work at Verily, particularly on retinal imaging and on pathology, and I'll just say it's not hard to be ophthalmologists and pathologists in terms of accuracy. But that does, when you have deep learning and you have a lot of pictures, but that doesn't, um, all that means to me is that now the professionals can spend their time interpreting the information and figuring out what to do instead of doing repetitive tasks that a machine can do better. I think it's going to create more work for people to do, not less but hopefully it'll be more humanly meaningful work than uh, the work that's currently being done. So I'll finish with this, which is a look at the way uh, search works according to what I'm told. Now, I'm not the expert, but you wonder if this is good enough for business. That it's a concept that the, everybody's digital footprint is looked at all the time in totality because there's not a limit to the ability to compute. But when there's an important question about what to do with a computer screen, a randomized trial is done. You signed up when you clicked the box to participate in randomized trials. And um, their endpoint is aggregated uh, ad revenue over time. Um, it's a sophisticated endpoint. And the way they say it is they learned early in Google's history that you wouldn't want to use an observational study to decide something so important because confounding is so profound. And yet here we are in medicine guessing the vast majority of the time about what the best treatment is, not using a tool that God gave us called uh, randomization. Of course, they have the advantage at Google that they'll have five to 10 million participants in the first hour. And uh, you know the power of the uh, numbers is profound, but what's keeping us with 300 million Americans with electronic health records from advancing knowledge at the same rate that technology companies can about your shopping behavior? And so um, I would argue that the uh, desired state would be one of collective intelligence in medicine where data are shared widely under certain conditions. The smartest people 
no matter where they are, analyze it. And the effort goes into analysis because we have tools like maps that can ingest the data and not have us spend all of our time trying to type stuff into a computer uh, with expensive people like we do now. But it's obvious that for that to happen, um, to be to the good of people, um, people like you have to be involved in thinking about what the rules should be uh, so that the aggregate analysis is used for benefit and not to swing elections in places like the United States. So I'll stop there and I hope uh, this has been entertaining. I hope it hasn't been too depressing, but I think of it more as a call to arms. Thank you.